Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast from Clare Church. If you'd like more information or the chance to donate online, please visit clarechurch.com. Good morning. We continue our Jedi Jesus series with a slightly different kind of miracle going on here today in Mark chapter 14. Uh, so, if you have your Bible, you can follow along in Mark chapter 14. Uh, with me, what I'd like to do today is kind of work through this story and let's try to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples and what this experience might have been like for them and kind of maybe compare that or contrast that with what Jesus was hoping they would begin to learn and understand because I think that's helpful for us because we want as disciples, as followers of Jesus, to learn and understand and grow. So that's that's my hope today that as we go by, and I, there's something very important, an important point that Jesus wants, I think, wants to get across to us for our faith today, just as important as it was for the disciples at the time that they experienced this firsthand for themselves. Okay, here we are. Uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? There's a lot there. First of all, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this would have been a Jewish feast or celebration. If you can remember back, Claire and Ebenezer, we used to switch off hosting a similar type of meal, a Christian Seder meal, where we went through some of the symbolism and the food that the uh, Jewish folks used to remember and celebrate this, this time. Uh, interestingly enough, it was about this time of year that they celebrate this, uh, April, March, April time of year, this time frame. Um, and there were lots of symbols. It goes back to what they were instructed in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy of how to celebrate and remember the Passover. It was a, a remembrance of when they were slaves in Egypt. You remember Moses came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. That movie I think is going to be coming up on TV here pretty soon in the next few weeks, right? And Moses goes and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. So Moses is like, all right. God's going to show you what he can do. And there was plague after plague after plague. And the last of those plagues was this, uh, uh, was the Passover. The way the Jewish folks remember it was God said, sacrifice the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorpost and at the side of the door. That will be a sign to God to pass over your house. In everybody else's house, the firstborn son would, would die. And so when Pharaoh woke up and his son was dead, He's like, okay, I can't take this anymore. Get out of here. You guys are a curse to me. Get out of here. And so he lets the people go, right? So that's why the Jewish folks remember this. Remember how God saved us. Remember how God rescued us. How uh, that plague passed over us. And because of that, we were able to be set free and let go. So then the Feast of Unleavened Bread reminded them of how quickly they had to leave and move, that they didn't have time to let the bread rise, that they had to take what they could as quick as they could. And so they used unleavened bread or 
bread that's not all soft and chewy and yummy, but it was bread that was uh, more kind of crackery, uh, flat type of bread. And so they, they left in a hurry, and that was the bread that they had, and so that's what they ate. And so celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a remembrance of that freedom that they gained and that journey that they had out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and into the promised land. So this, that's what they're looking at celebrating. So this would have been something that Jesus, as a Jewish person, as the disciples, as Jewish people, that they would have been practicing and participating in probably every year. That this would have been a holiday that they would have celebrated on an annual basis. Okay? So the disciples go and they ask Jesus, so that when it was customary sacrifice and pass over the land, Jesus' disciples initiate this conversation and they ask him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover meal? So Jesus isn't telling them, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, go and do this. No, the disciples come to him and say, hey, I know it's that time of year where every year we go to this religious ceremony and do these religious things. Where do you want us to go set up and make preparations so we can do the same thing that we've done every year for how many ever years? Are you following? Are you tracking with me? About, so the, the disciples are, if we can kind of put ourselves in their shoes pretty easy because that's how we practice our religion. That we kind of show up and we are expecting religion. We're expecting things to kind of be similar to what we've always known, the same kind of practices, right? When you showed up to church today, you expected to what? Sing some songs, say some prayers, read some scriptures, and, and sit and fall asleep during the sermon, right? No. Uh, something like that. There's some kind of regular rhythm and regular practice, you know, and when it comes time to celebrate Christmas, we have Christmas Eve candlelight service with Holy Communion. When it comes time to celebrate Easter, there's a certain way we do things. There's certain ways we decorate, right? There's certain ways we get ready for all of these different holidays and ways that we do things. You may have traditions in your own family that are different from some other families. So when the disciples come and they ask Jesus this question, all of these regular, normal expectations are wrapped up in this question. Jesus, we've been on this journey just like it. So part of the tradition was, if you're not from Jerusalem, you make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, right? You make the pilgrimage because that's where the temple is, right? So in fact, in other accounts of the gospel, we know that Jesus had been on similar pilgrimages at earlier times in his life. Uh, I can't remember if it's, I think it's Luke's gospel, it might be Matthew's gospel, but it talks about when Jesus was 12 years old and he gets left behind. Remember that? Where did they find him? In the temple, in his father's house, right? So uh, there's a sense here that this had been something that Jesus had been practicing year after year after year as part of the, the good Jewish religious faith and practice of his life. And the disciples were expecting a similar kind of thing. So they asked him this question. Hey, we're, we've already come this far towards Jerusalem. We're making this pilgrimage. It must be because that's what we do to practice our religion. So let's ask Jesus where he wants to go and continue meeting these expectations of how we celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they asked him, where do you want us to go and make these preparations? So, this is verse 13. 
He sent two of his disciples. Jesus loves to send them out to get parents. Other places we read, he sent them out two by two to do ministry together. So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. This is very similar to if you go a couple of chapters back, when Jesus shows up in uh, Jerusalem, he tells them, Hey, go into the city right out right there on the edge of the city, you'll find a colt tied up. Tell them, if anybody asks you about it, tell them the master needs it, and bring it to me, and I'll ride that on into the city. That'll be part of the story we read next week for Palm Sunday. Uh, so, it's a similar kind of thing. It's as if Jesus has some kind of foreknowledge, or some way of being able to know the future in detail that the disciples don't know. So they're just kind of trusting in his direction and being obedient to what he says now, I assume it could be possible. Remember I said Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, something they do on a regular basis. It could be that this person is somebody that Jesus knew, and he knew enough to have this arranged ahead of time. But from the disciples' point of view, it was like, oh, wow. Like he said, this is what we find, and this is exactly what we found. It was kind of amazing to them, kind of miraculous. And Jesus gives them further instructions. So, follow the guy with the jar of water to back to the house. Say to the owner of the house where he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. Now, if this were Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel, where they talk about Jesus being born, I could make a connection here. Because you remember the first time Jesus was looking for a guest room, there was no room, right? There was no room. But this time, for the Passover, when it's time to make that sacrifice of the lamb, there is room. Uh, so he will show you a larger room, make the preparations there. So the disciples left, they went into the city, and they found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So, the Gospel of Mark, for the most part, tradition tells us that Mark was written based on the memories of Peter, that Peter is telling the story of Mark is writing them down. Okay? Peter is the one who, uh, that we see in the story, is the one that Jesus says, Peter, you are the rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter is the one who, on the day of Pentecost, stands up and preaches to everybody. Peter is seen as, like, the leader, the original uh, starter, the one who got this movement of the church going. You know, that kind of takes the leadership reins from Jesus and launches the church, right? So, uh, that's who we think Mark wrote down this gospel based on. And so, think about this for a second. It says, when evening came, Jesus arrived at the twelve, while they were reclining at the table eating. Now, if you know anything about the Passover meal, while they were eating, there's a lot of stuff that happens. And Mark doesn't record any of those details. 
Because if you ever go and experience a Seder meal, Passover meal, you know that there's words that they say. That they explain every little symbol of the food and the meal that they're going through, right? All of that is in that one sentence right here. While they were reclining and eating at the table. All of that stuff is going on. All of that religious ceremony to celebrate the Passover is going on. And what Peter passed on to Mark, that Mark wrote down and passed on to us, is that Jesus, in the middle of all their normal expectation and practice of their religious celebration, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. That that's what was important for them to write down and pass on to us of what happened at this particular Passover meal that has come to be known as the Last Supper. That one of you will betray me. So kind of, you can imagine, everything's going along as planned. Preparations for this celebration are all in place. Everything's going great. Everything's going smooth. Everything sounds the same. And then Jesus says, hey, one of you guys is going to stab me in the back. <laughs> right? That's probably why it stuck out to them, you think? So they were all saddened. The disciples, they were all saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely not I. Surely not I. Even Judas, even Judas says, Surely not I. And I think a lot of us can relate to that same saying. That as we look around, I'm a good person. I don't do bad things. I don't make it a habit to lie, cheat, steal. I don't kill people. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. Surely not I. Surely not I. Surely not I. And yet, I think Jesus is wanting us to track with him and discover what's important about this Last Supper, about this interaction that's happening here. And many of us are saying, Jesus, surely you can't mean me. Like, how many sermons have you sat through and you thought maybe the preacher was saying something specifically to you, but then you just kind of push it aside saying, nah, surely not me. Surely not me. How many times have you thought maybe God was trying to get through to you through something in your life and you're like, no, surely not me. Surely not me. Okay, that's verse 19. Verse 20, Jesus responds. So each one of them goes around, surely not I, surely not I. Is that even proper English? Surely not. Because I'm tempted to say surely not me. But anyway, it is one of the 12, Jesus replied. So they all go around. And he said, like, no, no, it is one of you. He replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, so again, that phrase, while they were eating, think Passover meal. Go back to the Old Testament and read about it all the traditions and all the things they went through to celebrate that Passover meal. All that's going on. So while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, which probably would have been normal. There's a point at which you explain what the unleavened bread means. Jesus took the bread, gave it to his disciples, and said, take and eat. 
This is my body. Hold on a second, Jesus. Hold on a second. We've ate this Passover meal before, and not once were those words in there. Okay? Are you following what this would have been like for the disciples to experience this? Not once were those, have those words ever been used. And here you're telling us that this bread that reminds us of how quickly they came out of slavery is now your body? What in the world are you talking about? In fact, when John records Jesus teaching about the bread being his body and the wine being his blood, in John chapter 6, Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life, the bread from heaven, which we remember that part of the story of going through the wilderness was that God provided bread from heaven called manna. Remember, he gave them some kind of substance to eat. It was that manna, that bread from heaven. And Jesus said, told them in John chapter 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And everybody scratched their heads. In fact, to the point where at the end of that chapter, people walked away from Jesus. They said, this is too hard. This is too difficult for us to understand. We are used to these things, meaning certain things. Jesus, you can't just take them and make them mean something else. You can't just change our religion on us like that. You can't just change what we've always been used to like that. Okay? So Jesus says, take, this is my body. Verse 23, then he took the cup. In the Passover meal, there, there's multiple cups. We don't know for sure which one it is. It just says, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. It says that he took the cup, gave thanks to God, offered it to them. They all drank from it. Then he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I tell you the truth. I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So again, a similar kind of thing. They were expecting this cup to mean one thing, and Jesus opens his mouth and says something unexpected. And what, if you want to connect this back to Mark's telling of the story, all along the way, toward, on this journey to Jerusalem, that this wasn't a normal pilgrimage for Jesus and the disciples and the crowds and the followers that, that were with him. That all along the way, Jesus keeps telling them, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And once again, at this last supper, Jesus again saying, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood, my life, poured out for you. I'm going to die. I will not drink of this again until I taste it in heaven. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And as Holy Week comes, we'll pick up the story there, um, you know, on that Wednesday and, and uh, Good Friday, that week before Easter, and read about what happens at the Mount of Olives and what happens from there to the cross and what happens from the cross to Easter Sunday early in the morning on that first day of the week. But today I want to focus on this Last Supper meal. And what is going on here? What is it that Jesus is trying to get through to the disciples. 
What is it that God is trying to tell us as people who claim to be Christians and disciples? I think what he's trying to get through to them is something that's so important. That they came to this expecting, hey, let's celebrate the Passover. Let's celebrate things the way we've always celebrated them. Let's remember things and memorialize things the way we've always remembered and memorialized them. Let's keep doing our religion the best way we can do our religion. Let's celebrate this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let's celebrate these things together. Let's spend time together. All of these were good and okay things. But Jesus was trying to shift their focus and challenge their expectations. So that was one thing that the disciples were expecting, right? Normal, regular, just like we always did. The other thing they were expecting, and I think along the way maybe they had picked up on this, but that this pilgrimage to Jerusalem wasn't just about fulfilling a religious duty. It wasn't just about meeting religious expectations. That there was something different about this one. Because along the way of this pilgrimage, Jesus had picked up more and more followers. Crowds were following him. He had picked up more and more momentum. People were talking about him. There was a buzz about him. Did you hear about how he made this guy see? Did you hear about how he made this guy walk again? Did you hear about? Did you hear about? Did you hear about? Did you hear about how he taught about this or taught about that? How he taught with authority. There's a buzz going on. There's momentum building up. The disciples were excited to go into Jerusalem because they thought that this was the time when their Messiah, their Savior, would go into Jerusalem and establish himself as the ruler that they wanted. That he would push out the Roman Empire and the Roman authorities and Israel would have their promised land again the way they remembered it, the way they knew it, the way they expected and wanted it to be and they would be out from under this foreign Roman authority. And their Messiah, their leader who would accomplish that was Jesus. So I don't know if they were expecting that he would have a rebellion that he would start. I don't know if they were expecting that he would gather some kind of militia. I don't know if they just were expecting him to lead some kind of riots. But somehow they had expectations of what the Messiah would look like and what a Messiah would accomplish. And all along the way, even though Peter says, I believe you are the Messiah, I don't know that he knew exactly what he meant because in his mind, Messiah looked different than what Jesus showed it to be, right? And so at this Passover meal, Jesus is showing them that this Messiah accomplishes his task by giving his life, by his body being broken, by his blood, his life being poured out on the cross. I don't know that they're picking up on it right away. This is chapter 14. There's only two more chapters of Mark left, right? There's only 16 chapters. So we're towards the end of the story here. And I still don't think the disciples have got to the point where they're able to switch and understand what Messiah Christ really means. And so I think this is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. 
that we come expecting certain things of our religion and of a Messiah. And Jesus is challenging you in those. Because we walk around saying, Jesus saved me, right? If I just had more money, it would save me, right? If I just had this or that or other thing, my life would be better off, right? Save me. If we just had the right people in charge of this government or this thing or that thing, my life would be better and it would be fixed. Jesus, come and fix all these problems in my life. But where did Jesus put the focus? See, we get focused on all those other problems, all these situations that need to be fixed, and we say, Jesus, Messiah, come in, set everything right, make my life easy the way I want it to be. And we get distracted by all those I need this, I need that, I need this, I need that, right? That's what our prayers oftentimes become. And Jesus offers them a challenge and say, it's not about your religious expectations and doing everything the way you've always known it. And it's not about what you're expecting me as a Messiah to be for you, but it's really all about me, Jesus. I'm right here. Right here for you. Here's my body. Here is my blood. Focus on Christ. Put your faith, your trust in Christ, in Jesus. Instead of all your religious expectations. Are you following? Are you tracking? Are you hearing what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I'm right here for you. It's about me being present in you. It's about me changing you. New life in Jesus Christ. And see, we want to stay in a safe place where we're not changed. Jesus changed everything else out there. And what Jesus is saying, my life through my death and resurrection my spirit, my presence in you changes you so that you can face this situation, that situation, this problem, that problem, all the way through it. Have faith. Trust in me. Trust in me. Jesus wants us to focus on him. That's where he's changing the focus. That's why he's saying, here's a new covenant sealed in my life's blood. Focus on Jesus. In fact, it's a lot like, um, I think a lot of times God is singing to us. Kind of like that Taylor Swift song. Anybody listen to Taylor Swift? Heard it on the radio? Am I about 10 years behind in the trends? <laughs> but remember, she had that song, uh, uh, Oh, It Just Left Me. Senior moment, can I have those? Uh, I'm the one who understands you've been here all along, so why can't you see you belong with me? That's what Jesus is singing to us. He's saying to his disciples, can't you see you belong with me? He's saying it to you today. Can't you see you belong with me? You're distracted by all these other things that you think you need fixed. 
But let me tell you, be with me is what Jesus is singing over you. Be with me. Be with me. Here's my body. Here's my blood. Be with me. Let me be with you. Right here. Right now. It's where you belong. And he gives us his life to be with us. Can't you see? Can't you see? It's right there in front of the disciples. I don't know that they saw it yet. Eventually they get it. And that's why I think this is the one most important thing that I hope my kids see in me is Jesus. That I hope churches see in me as a pastor is Jesus. I don't care about music and songs and technology and young, old, in between. It doesn't matter. But one thing I want everybody to see is Jesus. Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray. Holy God, you are a jealous God. What we mean by that is you wish we would give you more of our attention, more of our affection. And instead, God, we confess that we're distracted by other things, by lesser things. And so we confess, God, that truly deep down we need you. We need your love. We need your grace your mercy. Forgive us, we pray. Set us free from those distractions that bring about emptiness and death. Heal our hearts. Cleanse our souls. Reunite us with your love, your grace. We thank you for the teaching of this scripture today that challenges our expectations and refocuses our attention towards Jesus Christ. May we choose to be with you and allow you to be with us. God, we ask Jesus Christ into our lives, into our hearts. We put our whole trust in you, in your mercy and grace. We give our lives to you. You are our Lord and Savior. Change us into your kingdom. time to share together now in Holy Communion in the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. We remember how Jesus took the bread and gave thanks to God, broke the bread, saying, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat this, remember me. When they finished eating, he took the cup, gave thanks to God, 
gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, remember me. Let us pray. O oh God, in remembrance of these mighty acts of your love in your Son, Jesus Christ, as he offered himself for us, so we too offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice, that we show how we love one another, not just say it with our words, not just believing it or talking about it at church on Sundays, but we offer our lives every day to you to show others and to sacrifice of ourselves so that others can know your love. Pour out your Holy Spirit on all of us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes again in final victory and we all feast at his heavenly banquet. All honor and glory are yours, almighty God, now and forever. And now with the confidence of children of God, hear us as we pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power.